0: Well, we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and today we're just looking at one verse, and it's Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Let's pray. So, Father, as we come to your word, help us to understand it. Or give us um, fresh eyes to look at something that we've heard all our lives. Lord, help us to see the connection to the gospel here, and that you would change our hearts. Help us, help our selfish, sinful hearts, Lord, to be less focused on ourselves and more focused on you, your kingdom, your glory, and on others. We pray, Father, for unction and anointing for me as I preach and to the hearer. Amen. Well, there are a few things that are as well known as, uh, both in and outside of Christianity, as what's called the golden rule In fact, it's even the name of, at least according to the website, the oldest restaurant in Alabama, a great barbecue joint with now 11 locations and a food truck. Versions of it are found in other religions from everything of, uh, let's see if I can say it right, Zoroastrianism to Buddhism to Hinduism to good old secular culture. From an economic sense, you've heard the golden rule stated a little bit differently, right? He who has the gold makes the rule. But a lot of times we like the version that you might hear on the childhood playground after one child kicks another and the teacher says, little Johnny, why'd you do that? He said, well, I just gave to him before he could give it back to me. But here on the lips of our Savior and Creator, is the inspired Word of God. Different from other religions which stress more or less on fairness, the golden rule presented in Scripture cannot be separated from the starting point that we as His people are those who have first been done unto by God's grace, given salvation when we didn't deserve it, and we didn't even want it originally, and we can't do anything to repay it. Starting from that point, Remembering that we are first recipients of God's action towards us. This changes radically the standard by which we understand our duty to our neighbor. From just the selfish things we want back from others to actually desiring to love them well. To love them with that same love with which God has loved us. Now there's a way that we could preach this sermon this morning from a moralistic standpoint. Right Here's the command, go and do. And we do have commands in Scripture. This is one of them. Our God is not afraid of commands. However, if that's all we talk about, without any connection to Christ, then such a sermon could be delivered by a Jewish rabbi or a Muslim imam or maybe just a regular old secular philosopher who wants a just, equitable, and fair society. But We have to remember the context, for this is the Word of God, but it is not just only this. There's much more to the Word of God, and there's a a context here. It doesn't appear in our Bibles alone. It appears towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, we have to remember, was written to a specific audience. It was not to those who didn't know the Lord. This was not an invitation to salvation. This was given, preached by Christ, to those who already knew Him, who had already surrendered their lives to Him. Now that you have been saved, how shall you then live? It was delivered to those who had already been given the new birth and called on the name of the Lord. Is that true of you? Have you been born again? Have you called on the name of the Lord? If not, there might be a lot that we're going to talk about this morning that doesn't apply to you. Yet. And I hope that we can take that yet out pretty soon. and That you would know the Lord. So Jesus gives this command to His people. To Christians. He gives it to those who have already been on the receiving end of His great grace and mercy. It's given to us, we who didn't desire salvation before we were given it, didn't deserve it upon our conversion, either then or now. And it was given to those, to we ourselves, to us, who didn't contribute anything to our salvation (laughs) except for our sin. He gives us this command to those who were upon His mind some 2,000 years or so before they're even, they were even born as he died for them, for you, and for me as his people upon the cross. We are the recipients of having been done unto, right? As we think about how we should do unto others as we want them to do unto us, our starting point must be here. That we are those who have received something we didn't desire, didn't deserve, And we can't pay back. You know, there's great tension here, right? Because Scripture claims, or not claims, it it says, it declares uh, truthfully, Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yes, and amen, call upon the Lord. At the same time, we know that if we've called on the Lord, did we really want anything to do with Him before we called on the name of the Lord? If we did, we would have called on Him before then. Instead, Scripture's real clear that God is the one who initiated the relationship. He initiated it. We have, we have no right to claim any credit in our salvation. Well, we see this tension in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. We read, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Right? If you believe in his name, he gives you the right to become children of God. That sounds like our action. Verse 13, Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. We are the complete recipients of salvation. We are those who have received the blessings not because we deserved it. He saved us because we didn't. Doesn't this change how we view others? As we think about how we are to do unto them, that we first have to remember that we've been done unto in an amazing way, it's like, If there's a child on a playground and he looks across and there's that bully. And man, he is punching folks left and right. He is his greatest enemy. What does he do? He goes and he gets an ice cream cone. And he takes it to the bully and says, here, this is yours. It was an unlooked-for cone. It wasn't even desired. What an ice cream cone we have received of salvation a waffle cone of redemption ridged with the marks of the whip upon the back of our Savior. Dipped in chocolate but colored red with the blood of our Savior as he bled on the cross. A double portion of ice cream itself and the flavor of God's love and mercy with sprinkles of righteousness, joy, and the hope of heaven. For we were the enemies. We were the enemies of God according to Romans chapter 5, verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Shouldn't that change what we would like to do unto others? To we come to this question, we also have to remember that we're not just the recipients in the past of what He's done for us. You'll notice the therefore that begins this verse. Therefore. See, Jesus is connecting this statement, this concept, to what has gone before Especially in verse 11, when we read of the goodness of our God, who is our Father. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? We're not just those who have received salvation in the past. We're not just those who have received the good things of God in the past at our salvation. That's a one-time thing. Justification, a one-time thing when uh, when we are declared righteous before God as He pardons all of our sin based on what Christ has done for us, received in faith alone. That's a one-time thing. But salvation is not just that. We can think forward to salvation as we... And we'll enjoy eternal life with our Father in heaven and the new heavens and new earth with glorified bodies. But, but certainly now as He continues to sanctify us and calls us to persevere, He continues to help us and provide for us and guide us. We are not left on our own. We are not just people who have been done unto, who have received. We are those who are continuing to receive from the Lord all things that are needed for life and godliness. Everything we need, He gives to us. So doesn't that change? That we would, as we think through to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, we have to first start that we are people that have been done unto by God. Oh, praise Jesus. So, as those who have been redeemed and constantly blessed and are continually constantly blessed and have that great promise of being blessed forever in heaven Christ gives us command, and it is a command, to do to others as we would have them do to us. Now there's a way to read this command that makes it sound like the Hindu or Buddhist concept of karma. Have you ever heard of karma? Perhaps you've heard of Credit Karma, one of those companies out there. Karma is an Eastern idea, and it's actually really common in our culture, though you may not know it. It's the idea that you get back what you put out. Right? That if you want to have a blessed life with friends and money and health and family, then you basically just need to do good things. And if you're a good person, you'll get good. basically turns our actions into a sort of vending machine. You put in good, you get out good. You put in bad, you get bad. That's most assuredly not what Jesus is saying here. How do we know that, by the way? Here is Jesus, who is perfect and holy and righteous, never sinned just once. And and he had a lot of bad things come his way. Karma is not a Christian concept. And so we have to be careful that when we read this text, it's not that do these things so that other people do unto you. In fact, that's a really important thing that as one commentator points out, this does not say do unto others in order that they may do to you. We're not investing in future good actions towards us by being good to people, although a lot of times we do that, don't we? If we're honest, we give, good, we give gifts that eventually long-term will remind them of in hopes that we'll get something back. We'll have folks over in the hopes that they'll have us over their house or give a Christmas present in the hopes they'll give us one back. They're, they're, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. That would make this command a rather selfish one. Instead of being focused on the glory of God, the law and the prophets, and for the good of our neighbor. No, Jesus' point here is that not that we would do something in order to get it back. Rather, he is saying this is the standard, the standard for our actions. What will we like others to do to us? Well, the standard is that we would like them to, we would like them, to, we do what we would like them to do to us. And Jesus here um, presupposes, as one commentator points out, that we want what God wants, that his standards are our standards. Let me put it this way. If you give gifts to someone at Christmas just so that you will get a gift back from them, do do you think that's what Jesus is talking about here? No. We give good gifts because God has given us good gifts. That's a good standard to live by. Now, with most of the commands of God, there is a positive and a negative sense. What do I mean by that? Well, when we read in the sixth commandment not to murder anybody, that's a negative command. How do you obey that command? Well, you don't kill anybody. If you don't kill anybody you fulfilled that commandment. But there's also a positive sense of that command, that we are not just to not kill people, but also to positively do what is needed to protect life and to cherish life and to be good stewards of life. Just like the command not to commit adultery it's a negative command, and it means don't sleep with someone who's not your spouse. But it's also a positive command to cherish and prioritize your marriage. Why did I mention this? Well, so oftentimes we change the golden rule into the negative. The text says, do, do unto others, right? You know, I'm just quoting the King James because that's what you, what we all grew up with. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. It says do. But a lot of times we turn it into the other way around. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Basically, I don't want to get murdered, so I'm not going to murder anybody. That's not what the text says. In fact, that, that means that we could obey the sixth commandment just by doing nothing. And I don't think that's what's going on here. The golden rule has far greater applications than just restraining our bad behavior. It compels us to actively love and care and work for the good of others. So we back up and remember our starting point that we must first remember that we are people who have been done unto through the salvation of God, which we didn't deserve or even desire originally. We must be so thankful that God didn't follow the silver rule. You know, if he had just stepped back and done nothing, what would have happened? Every single one of us, every human ever created, ever born, would end up in hell. And that would be just. If God did not intervene, if he didn't actively do something, then he would have been glorified by sending every one of us to hell. That's a hard statement to hear, I would imagine, for some. But justice is good, and we deserve eternal damnation. But praise be to God that he did something. Not because he needed anybody to worship him. Not because there was some need that was unmet in him. Rather, out of love, the Christ was born. He bled, he died, and was raised for our salvation. Given that, we who have received that goodness, that good good gift of salvation, do we do 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 well not just to not do unto others? Do we do well just to not want to be bothered? So in marriage, we are to be active, Right, Actively seeking to fulfill this, this, this rule, this command. So if in marriage we desire to be the recipients of the initiating love of our spouses and attention and giving gifts and focus and leisure, if that's our desire, then, then we're to actively love our spouse in the same way as we remember the initiating love of God that He had for us. So at work we are active Not just being restrained, but actively working for the good of the others. Doing unto those, to others. For we desire at work out, imagine, be treated well with fairness and be heard out. So we treat others well and fairly. And listen to them as we thank God that he wasn't fair with us. Praise Jesus he wasn't fair with us. Fairness would have ended every one of us up in hell. So in the ball field, we desire to hear kind words of encouragement about our children. And so what do we do? We speak words of encouragement about the kids of others as we remember the words of cursing and abuse and condemnation that were hurled at our Savior on the cross. So amongst our brothers and sisters and classmates, we desire to be given our turn with the toys and the game system and the screen time. So we first give turns to others, even as we remember that Christ has shared his life with us. We do this as we remember that we will reap what we sow. Children, if you're watching this, what does it mean to reap and sow? Well, sow means to go and plant seeds, and reap just simply means to harvest. You go and plant seeds to plant okra or corn or whatever, and later, in weeks or months to come, you go and reap. That is, you harvest you plant the seeds and what do you get back? You get the, uh, the, the corn. And this is a biblical concept. We don't do good things for people in order that they might do good things for us. But practically there's often a real connection here, right? Between how we treat others and how we are treated back. This falls in line with Galatians 6 verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. In our workplaces, do we expect others to treat us fairly if we don't treat them fairly? Amongst our friends at school, are we right to get upset when others gossip about us, when we routinely gossip about them? Within our marriages, do we expect to have a peaceful and harmonious relationship when we are stirring in contention, anger, and bitterness? I think there's also an application here for just sowing into our culture love and justice and working for those who are oppressed. That we are sowing into our culture the very things that we want to get back out of it. Though we might know that we should treat others like we would want to be treated. Um the the honest truth is that we often fail miserably at it. We, and by we I mean me, I. Why is that? Well, it's because we're a bunch of sinners. Now that's not an excuse, that's not a cop-out. You know, so often you'll hear say, Well, nobody's perfect. Well, that that is true. But we shouldn't hide behind that. That's, no one's perfect. Therefore, Christ, the God-man, had to die. That's a, we should take that seriously. problem is we're a bunch of sinners, and there's real great tension in the Christian life. We are at the same time declared righteous and forgiven and pardoned before God, and at the same time we continue to struggle daily with sin. You know, the biggest enemy, I'm convinced, of loving others well is our selfish, pride-filled heart. The reality is that we are so focused on ourselves. I am so focused on myself that we miss the, the, the continued and past and future blessings of God. And when we do that, when we do that, we lose sight of our desire to love others. If we forget what he has done, we will have no desire to love others. We just become so focused on ourselves. We must confess that we're often more focused on ourselves and what we want others to do for us than paying any attention to what we can do for them. In the 16th century, John Calvin said that, you know, we can really explain minutely and with great ingenuity what ought to be done for us, right? We know that. Our hearts are filled with selfish desires, and I know what I want, when I want, and what color it's going to be we spend so much time thinking about those things rather than, out of gratitude, what Christ has done for us, seeking to do those things, those very things, the things that we want for others. Not in order that we can get them back from them. Because what a blessing it would be to help others, to love them, and to do well unto them. But there does remain one more problem. And that's simply on our own, we are unable to fulfill this law. We are the problem. And oftentimes when we try to do this out of our own strength, we are left with paltry efforts that have more to do with ourselves and recognition for ourselves than out of true love for neighbor. It's a bit ironic, but the key to obeying the golden rule is to confess that we can't obey the golden rule. We need God's help. And He does help us. And He grows us in our understanding and gratitude for what He has done for us. And as we see that we again see how, how awful our own hearts are and how much sin and selfishness and pride is contained within our hearts. And that leads us again to a greater love and a greater gratitude for what Christ has done for that, which then shows us and reminds us again, whoa, I've so fallen short of the glory of God. I've missed that mark. And it's a cycle backwards and forth as the knowledge of God and knowledge of man are so intertwined. And when we see a great Christ, that's when we are enabled to love others and to do unto them as we would have them do unto us. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would grow us in our gratitude for what you have done for us. Help us, Lord, to put others before ourselves and count them as more significant. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.